All right. If you want to turn with me, we are going to be, we're going to start in, I should say, Matthew's Gospel. Going all the way to the very end. All the way back there. We're going to start 28, verse 16. And I am going to try to... Is this going to work for me? I might just have to stay on that, huh? It's iffy. Yep, I'd say it's iffy. Okay. No, it's on. Just not working. Right on. That's what I like to see. You stay up late. You spend hours and hours making this thing. Only for it not to work. The Lord likes to just let me know exactly how sanctified I am. Usually not quite as far as I think, right? Well, I want to embark this morning on an exegetical treatise of sorts, and I am not going to exhaust this subject. So we're going to do a systematic study regarding a biblical topic of great importance. And that is the issue of authority. It's one that's facing the church right now, staring us down the barrel, as it were. Especially considering the day and time we now find ourselves in. Before I go any further, I should, I should announce a couple more things. Number one, uh, Blake and Shale are having a baby right now. Woohoo! So, hopefully, if all goes well, we will be, uh, greeting, meeting and greeting little Piper Joy, at least in pictures. We might not see her for a while, but soon. Number two, sure you probably saw the news that John MacArthur's church is now settled with the county. They have paid uh, $800,000 and all the legal fees, as they should, for trying to impose illegal, spurious, that's the word I'm going to use today, and unrighteous control over the church. I was excited to see that as well. So, let me say it this way. We're living in a time... When there are wicked rulers who desire to be tyrants among us, they want to rule in a heavy-handed, despotic fashion. They want to be the king, and they want you to be their peasant subjects, their peasant servants. And many of you have questions about what a Christian's responsibility is in that context. And that looks a little different depending on where you live and what the structures are you live with, and I get that. So I'm going to assume most of you listening to this live in the United States. So that's the uh, context that we're going to discuss it in. I've had a multitude of conversations and fielded a host of questions over the past year on this topic. And that being the case, I have revisited this subject with much fervor, a lot of it. And so I've become increasingly burdened to share with you, God's people, what I've learned. I might also mention, I don't think the attempted tyranny and usurpation that we are seeing and that we have seen over the past couple of years is going to be turned back until the church stands firm against it. You don't turn back tyranny by going along with it. You don't turn back any sin by going along with it. My dad used to say it this way. He said, don't complain about what you allow. It's wise words, isn't it? 
After all, and you're going to see that today, we are literally the only ones with any authority to oppose it. Because we're standing on the authority of Christ and he has all authority in heaven and earth. There are now and there will be in the future tyrannical men and women who are going to attempt to push their wickedness on us by law, by force, by hook, by crook, by whichever way they can. And it is not virtuous to go along with it. It is not virtuous to stay silent and pretend it's okay. That virtue is called cowardice. And I'm calling myself and you to rise above it. It's not a virtue. Cowardice is not a virtue. We need to know how to deal with these times in a biblical fashion. So that's what I want to start with today. I will not exhaust this subject today. This will likely be more of an introduction, really, so I can really get into the meat of this argument in two weeks. It's a monstrous subject. It requires careful exegesis of multiple passages of Scripture. And the implication of that exegesis has far-reaching consequences. So it must be approached carefully, thoughtfully, scripturally. As sort of a teaser, you'll notice I use the word spurious. Are you familiar with that term? In case you're not, here's what it means. Not being what something purports to be. A fake, a false, bogus, fraudulent. See if I can... Look at that. It worked. Praise the Lord. It's only got to work 13 more times. Something that seems to be authentic but is actually fraudulent. That's what spurious is. What's crazy to me is if you as a Christian have piped up over the last couple years and said, hey, what's going on is not right. You're beat over the head with, by other Christians a lot of times. By Romans 13 says you should just submit to it. Okay, well, I'm going to get into that. If that were the case, uh, our founding fathers, who were very, very influenced by the Scriptures and by a book I'm going to show you here in just a second. It was written by a bunch of French Calvinistic Huguenots said this, let's make sure our government is such that there are only citizens, there are no subjects, and the, the authority of the land is a document so that if anyone tries to submit their fellow subjects, their fellow citizens and make them subjects, they will be in conflict with this authority. That is to say, when you have another citizen who's trying to lord themselves over you, and make you a subject instead, and push something onto you that is absolutely not constitutional, they are the ones who are now in violation of Romans 13. And those who go along with them are in violation of that passage. Not me for standing up and saying it's not right. It's kind of, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, aren't I? That's for in two weeks. There's no way I'm going to get there. Instead, we're going to Matthew. We've got to start, as we say, at the beginning, right? Uh, let me also tell you at this juncture, I found two books on this topic. I've, I've read a lot of books on this topic over the last year. But I found two that are really helpful when you're reasoning through this subject. And I want to show them to you. It's incredible. It's just kind of a backdrop. Look at that. It worked again. The one on the left there, the red book, is called Vindicae Contra Tyrannos. Vindicae Contra Tyrannos. Latin, 
that translates roughly to a, a defense of liberty against tyrants. This particular English translation, by the way, was recently re- released by Canon Press. It's very good. This little book was first published in 1579, both Latin and French. might be the single most influential work on the founding and political structure of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I know it makes us really leery to hear those words in church. Like, why are we talking about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? This church tells us about the Bible. I have news for you. Those documents were an outgrowth of church history. There's a lot of scripture that went into them. And to pretend they don't exist or try to turn our back on them is literally to turn back 400 years of blood, sweat, and tears by Protestants. I'm going to make mention of them because they deserve mention. And I know that's an awful big claim I just made. This little book was the most influential book on that? How could I say that? I mean, if you're a historian at all, you're going to say the guy that really influenced the founders the most was who? Go ahead, you can say it. Or not. Okay, John Locke. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. Right, John Locke, right, yes. John Locke, that's right. John Locke and John Locke's writings, they would typically, we're going to say, those were obviously the most influential because he was the guy that was being quoted. Other than Scripture, by the way, Scripture was quoted much more than even John Locke. But other than Scripture, he was the one that's quoted most between the founders. What people don't realize is, yeah, but John Locke got his writing from this book. Basically, he read this little book, secularized it, and then put it out into his writings. And he became, that, that thought process became very, very influential. Okay? Uh, written by a group of staunchly Calvinistic French Protestants. Which I'll get into here in a second. Little black book on the right, Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, also very good. Both of those very good on this subject. But this little one on the left has quite a history. And if you want to know more about this subject, I just I don't think you can really dive into this without diving into that. <clears throat> Written by a group of staunchly Calvinistic French Protestants. Put it up here so you can see it. Who had been living under a brutally oppressive and tyrannical Roman Catholic regime in France. Anyone want to hazard a guess at who that was? What was the name? I've said it. They were the Huguenots. 1572, a large group of Huguenots were assembled in Paris, which was then largely Roman Catholic, to celebrate the wedding of a prominent Huguenot to the king's sister. The Roman Catholic queen at the time, Catherine de Medici, along with some Roman Catholic church authorities, saw their chance and ordered the killing of the Protestants to begin. The slaughter would start on the evening before St. Bartholomew's Day and would continue on for weeks. It's come to be known as St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Estimates of the number killed by that Wiccan Roman Catholic regime ranges up to 30,000. In case you're wondering, Pope Gregory XIII was so pleased with all of that, all that bloodshed, that he had a medal struck in honor of, the, of events and sent one to Catherine and to the Catholic prelates. Swell guy, huh? It was just a few years after those events that this book was written. These folks understood tyranny. They understood persecution. They knew it quite intimately. That persecution would drive many of those Huguenots, those Calvinist Protestants, to move to America. Trust me, we like that. Let me give you some of who those were. 
They were tired of constantly being in fear of their life. And so many of these very well-educated and very highly skilled Christian Protestant Calvinists would immigrate to the American colonies. A Huguenot named DuPont, you may have heard of that word before, you may have heard of the company that bears his name. A Huguenot named DuPont would bring his expertise in chemistry and specifically making gunpowder. Many a colonist would be thankful for him by the time the war for independence was over. Huguenot Apollo Revere was a master gold and silversmith. He would immigrate to America before having a son named Paul. Yes, that Paul Revere. Another Huguenot immigrant would have a, great, or a, would have a grandson by the name of George Washington. You may have heard of some of these people. So these French Calvinists that came over to America and their descendants helped shape America in many ways. And a large part of that was because of their knowledge of church history, church theology, and this. That is to say, a knowledge of what the scriptures have to say about political outworkings. One author had this to say, despite its brevity, it is a very small book, despite its brevity, vindicates sharp defense of the right of subjects to resist unjust or ungodly rulers, even to the point of arming themselves for rebellion, helped shape the political theories of John Locke in England and the American founders as well. So, for you researchers and readers, highly recommend it. Enough with the church history for now, though. Let's get into the scriptures, shall we? Let's pray. Let's dive into God's word. Lord, we ask you give us wisdom and truth through your word. Equip and strengthen us, your people, for the days we live in and the days ahead. Make us fit to proclaim, defend, and live out your word, even in the midst of despotic rulers, even in the midst of God-hating governmental authorities even in the midst of leaders who are in open rebellion against you. Teach us, your people, through your word. Prepare us through your word. Edify us through your word, I ask today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, turn with me. Matthew 28. This is the first place we need to go in Scripture. So, the first place we're going to go to discuss... Biblical form of political outworkings and, and authority is the Great Commission. That's right. That's right. The Great Commission, as you know it, is often the most truncated little biblical piece that exists in the New Testament. We will quote, you ask somebody, hey, what's the, hey, tell, me the uh, tell me the Great Commission. Uh, go therefore in every nation, make disciples, right? We don't even quote the whole sentence. By the way, we usually don't even quote the end of the sentence either. We just take his little piece out of the middle. Like You want to talk about taking a verse out of context. You don't even quote the whole sentence. Jesus was speaking a sentence, and we won't even quote the first verse. Let's start at 16. 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 18. Notice, here it is. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You know what we will do? Hey, what's the Great Commission? Oh, the Great Commission is go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Uh, that's true. But there's more to it than that. 
The whole reason that he's saying go is that he's saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. All of it. Not a little bit. All of it. Doesn't it seem strange to you that we would truncate this? I I think it should. Verse 18 is the very reason for it in the first place. If I asked most Christians, give me the reason for the Great Commission, what would they say? Would they even know it? So you wouldn't want to talk about that. It's not polite in Baptist circles. Because we have succumbed to something called pietism. We have basically just succumbed to the idea that our job as the church is come to church, come inside the four walls, listen to the gospel, go home, read our Bibles. Our, our faith should be private. Don't let it get out. That's not true. There is not a single area of life that does not fall under the authority of Jesus Christ. Period. We don't want to talk about verse 18. It's not seen as really important, so it's just kind of skipped over. And verse 20, it's not seen as too important anyway. But besides, it's got that naughty word in it, right? Obey. Right? Or in my, I use the New King James, it says observe, but it means the same thing, right? It means to obey. And our flesh hates being told about obedience. You can see why we don't typically jump up and down and proclaim verse 20. But verse 20 is just as true as verse 19. Obedience was front and center for Jesus. In John 14, he tells us if we love him, we will obey his commandments. That's also a verse that doesn't get a lot of pulpit time in modern churches, at least in America. But I think perhaps the most theologically unsettling is that we tend to skip over verse 18 when we're discussing the Great Commission. We take that to be just a religious mantra. Is Jesus king? Oh, yeah, he's king. He's my king. I didn't ask if he was your king. I asked if he was king, period. Well, he's king of my heart. He, he's my king because I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. See, you have succumbed to pietism then. You think Jesus is only the king of the church? Is that what he said? How much authority has he been given? See, only the authority over believers? He has all authority, period. All true authority in all the earth belongs to him, period. Not just for believers, for everyone, for everything. There is not a square inch in all of creation, as Abraham Kuyper liked to say, that Jesus does not point at and say, that's mine. And he rightly does so. We can have entire theological discussions over the Great Commission in Baptist circles and never even talk about verse 18. Somehow the first 12 words that Jesus speaks here are not important. I'm sorry, but that's a short-sighted way of engaging with this passage. Without verse 18, there is no 19. And that's the reason he tells them. You can go out, go forward, make disciples. You know why you can do that? Because I now have all authority. That was a big deal. Right? Right? I have all authority. Hey, guys, I want you to go out into all the earth and make disciples of every nation. Whoa, time out. There's nations out there that are totally pagan. They worship these false gods. Jesus is saying, no, guys, I have all authority now. Listen, that's that's a big deal that we don't I don't think we think about that. Sorry, let me like. 
calm down and like try to rein in my ADD. That's a heavy theological development. When Jesus is saying, I have all authority, that's not just you know, a throwaway little mantra line. That's a very heavy theological development. Remember back in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, we find Satan saying something very curious to Jesus. So let me read this little curious passage to you. You find it in Matthew or in Luke, I'm sorry. Luke 4, 5 through 7. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you'll just worship me, all will be yours. Satan is in this passage making a legitimate claim to earthly authority. How had he acquired any authority? Well, through Adam's fall, he had acquired a legitimate claim to some earthly authority. But through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has stripped Satan of that. He has delegitimized all the devil's claims of authority. All the devil's claims on people as well. All authority in heaven and on earth now belongs to Jesus. There is no one else that's able to rule and reign legitimately. That brings us to the most important biblical principle in this entire discussion. I know you've seen this before, but I want you to just roll it over in your mind. Number one, Jesus Christ has all authority, not just in heaven. See, that's what a lot of times we think. We think, well, Jesus is the king of heaven, but not earth. No, Jesus is the rightful king of both heaven and earth. He's not just the king inside the church walls. He is the king, period. There are two kinds of people. Those who recognize that he is the king, that would be Christians, and those who are doing all they can, their utmost, to rebel against that fact. He is the king, The battle is not still ongoing. It's over. He has won. We're just proclaiming what he's done. Uh, Y'all might still be fighting, but I got news for you. Battle's over. Okay, Jesus won. He is the king. He's not just, oh, please, please come to me. He's not wringing his hands and just begging. He's saying... Uh, I've won this, this belongs to me, and I will accept your unconditional surrender now. But there's a day coming that it'll be too late. You know what we've done? We've portrayed him as a feeble and weak beggar. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the ruler. He will return, and it won't be as the lamb. It'll be as the lion. He has all authority. Does he only reign in the church? I want you to think about that. Does he only reign in the church? Is the culture we live in an exception? I didn't reign there. Is he not the legitimate authority? Is he not the legitimate authority for for everything? Is there an exception to his rulership? Is there an asterisk I should put in here? Ah, he's not really. I mean, we say he's the king, but he's not really. No, he is the real king. 
We don't say he's a king because we have a religious mantra that we like and sounds good and looks good on T-shirts and bumper stickers. We say he's the king because we are proclaiming metaphysical truth. He is the king. We've got to get it through our thick skulls. He is King Jesus. Period. He's the king over believers and he's the king over unbelievers. It's just that unbelievers don't like that fact. So they do all they can not to recognize it. When we say Jesus is king, we are proclaiming fact. There is no part of reality that's outside of his rulership. None. That's the nonsense that makes my blood boil. I hear people say, well, meaning enough, just preach the gospel. Don't concern yourselves with anything else. Well, all that other stuff is called discipleship. And it does concern us. Should we preach the gospel? Absolutely, obviously. I'm trying to remember who said it. I think it was Spurgeon, actually, who said, prayer for others is a duty. But when it becomes a substitute for the action we know to do, it is then no longer. In other words, here's what we like to do. We like to be lazy. We'll say, let's just preach the gospel and pray and leave the rest to Jesus. As if somehow he is magically going to do all this disciple making that he has commanded us to do. Like, I don't know, through dreams and visions or something. It's not how it works. He told us to go make disciples. Disciple making is part of the Great Commission. He did not say just go preach the gospel. He did say go preach the gospel, but there's more to it than that. Go preach the gospel and go make disciples. Get them to sign up. Get them to enlist. Compel them. Form them. Teach them. That's what disciple means. It means pupil. It's a learner. Teach them these ways. You know what we have? We have Christians. Folks, we have people who say they are Christians, who are faithful to local churches, and still think abortion's an okay thing. How in the world does that happen? I'll tell you how that happens. They go to a church. Well, the man behind the pulpit thinks, hey, all I need to do is just preach. No discipleship necessary. Discipleship's necessary. We have a lot of Christians that have never been discipled. Tell me I'm wrong. Look, I teach high school. I've got 10th, 11th, 12th graders all day, every day. I can promise you the vast majority, if you don't believe me, ask Justin, the vast majority who call themselves Christians are absolutely not disciples. And not to any fault of their own, per se. They don't know any better. Nobody's ever taught them any better. In their mind, being a Christian means I go to church on Sundays, and if you're really serious, you go to church on Wednesdays, too. Right? But nobody sat down and, and wrestled through Scripture with them, taught them theology, taught them church history. You know why? Oh, we just dumped that off to everybody else. Well, why do I need to teach them church history? they got a school class for that. Okay? And you think they learned that there? Uh, no. No, they don't. Jesus explicitly commands us to go make disciples. That was verse 19. And then he teaches us that the way we do that is to teach those people to obey everything he commands. And I'm saying 
We're falling down on the job on that part. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I don't. But I am saying we need to do better. And I think anybody, you know, with a functioning brain in their head can look around at what the American church is today and say, yeah, you know what? We have definitely dropped the ball on discipleship. We have. We have not taught our parents to disciple their kids. And we have not taught that for generations. I mean, I grew up in what would be called a Christian home. I don't know, like devotions? I don't know what that was. First time I saw that was I had a pastor who did it. I remember being out at his house one time after church, and he's like, hey, we're going to do devotions with the kids. So he brings all the kids in, they do their nightly devotions, and I was like, huh, this is probably a really good idea. In my mid-20s before I ever saw that, and I was around a lot of other Christian folks, or at least people that said they were Christian. I think another reason we like to parrot that kind of stuff is it allows us to be lazy and apathetical. We can see what's going on in the culture and go, hey, it's not my fault. Not our fault. We done told you better. If you'd have just come to church, I'd have told you better. Well, if that's all the engagement that we have, then maybe it is partly our fault. It allows us to sit on the sidelines of the culture and not have to shoulder any blame for the flaming dumpster fire it's become right under our noses. Look, I'm guilty. I am not saying you're guilty and I'm not. I'm guilty too. I have not been engaged in the way I should. I would much rather criticize what's going on in Oklahoma City or Washington, D.C. or in my local you know, place that I work, the school that I work, than actually have to do something about it. Know Why? Because if I do something about it, people won't like me. If I show up to the, the meeting and I raise a fit, I pitch a fit about the nonsense that's going on, people get really upset with me, don't they? Well, you're just a troublemaker. Do you understand? We got, this is fine. Everything's fine. This has been going on for a long time. Doesn't matter whether it's going on for a long time. It's dishonoring to the legitimate king of the earth. Well, you just say that because of your religion. No. It is a religious statement. But it's true for every person. I don't care if you're Buddhist or Muslim or secular atheist. Jesus is still king, period. It's like gravity, folks. I don't believe in gravity. Fine. You don't have to. That doesn't mean it's not true. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, By the way, I have literally had a conversation with someone who did not believe in gravity. So there you go. Those people do exist. Just letting you know. It was a strange conversation. But it should be equally as strange when you talk to someone that does not believe in the kingship of Jesus. Yes, you do. You know that Jesus is true, is real, and is king. You just don't like that. Making disciples is literally the point of the Great Commission. And we are to preach the gospel, obviously, but our efforts cannot stop there. We must be willing to engage in the arduous task, and it is arduous, of making disciples. If the church in America is unwilling to do the tough work of making disciples, if we're unwilling to engage in the public square, which means we're basically willingly surrendering ground, that's what that means. If we're not going to engage in the public square, that means we're literally surrendering ground that people have died for. 
And it means we're not being the light and the salt to a dark and decaying culture that we're called to be. You listen, I realize we are the bride of Christ, but the bride of Christ is a, a bride that wears combat boots under her dress. She's not in a tiara and glass slippers. I've talked to some combat veterans over the past few weeks, high-level operators, guys that actually saw combat tours in Afghanistan. Most of them were either angry or sad at what they've seen there for the past few weeks. Why? Well, because they shed their own blood or they lost the lives of friends for the ground that they took over there. And now through poor leadership, careless planning, or maybe just sheer apathy, much of the ground they fought so hard to push the Taliban out of has now been retaken quickly. That's a perfect illustration of what the church in America has done. It's exactly what we've done. We've decided to put it on full retreat mode in every area except the four walls of the church. Then we have the audacity to look out in the culture and go, how is it this way? How did it get this way? This is crazy. Don't you people know what you're doing is nuts? Yeah, how did it get that way? It got that way because we decided, let's take the salt out, throw it. Don't talk about that stuff. Don't go down to the school board meeting. Don't go up to the city council meeting. Right? Don't raise a ruckus. Why, people will get mad at you for it. They'll think you're a troublemaker. To steal a term, we need some godly troublemakers. That's what the disciples were. We told you, stop preaching in this name. Hey, buddy, God told us to. We're going to obey him. Okay, we're going to beat you. Awesome. We're all happy. You guys beat us. You're happy. We go preach Jesus. We're happy. This is a workable solution. We turn the world upside down. You know what we would do? We told you not to preach in that name. Well, it's okay. We'll just talk about it in our church meeting. Yeah, that hurts, doesn't it? Hurts me. It's a perfect metaphor for what the church has done in American culture. We have forebears that literally gave their lifeblood for the biblical principles, freedoms, and precepts that have undergirded much of Western culture. Maybe I should say that used to undergird much of Western culture. And we have been slowly allowing them to be eroded away. And then we make excuses for our apathy. It's inexcusable. Those precepts begin foundationally with this principle, recognizing Jesus as king over all, period. It's high time for us as the church to awaken from our slumber, to quote a scripture, awaken, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. I've got a lot more to say about this, but I don't have time. I'm going to move on. Okay. Here's another point to ponder. Why does Jesus teach his disciples to pray so aggressively if he wants us to just preach the gospel and leave everything else alone? You remember the Lord's Prayer? It's pretty bold and audacious if you ask me. The disciples come to Jesus and ask him, hey, teach us how we should pray. Here's his answer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing he's saying is God is to be reverenced. Second thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. 
I think sometimes we say that so much, like it, it loses its impact on us. You know what I'm talking about? You ever done that? I think we do the same thing with Pledge of Allegiance. We say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. I've literally asked kids in my class, hey, what form of government do we live in? We live in a democracy. Really? No, we don't. We don't? No. I mean, it is democratic. We have democratic principles. Don't get me wrong. But it's not a straight democracy. What is it? Uh, okay, here's what I want you to do. Real slowly, I want you to start regurgitating to me the Pledge of Allegiance. You say it every morning. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, United States of America, to the Republic. Whoa, stop right there. To the Republic for which it stands. What? What was it standing for? To the Republic for which it stands. To the Republic. Yes, good job. Woo! Right? We missed it. It, like, it loses its impact because we're so familiar with it. I think we do the same thing with the Lord's Prayer. We're so familiar with it, it loses its audaciousness. It loses its impact. Here's what I want you to pray for, guys. I want you to pray that my kingdom will come and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How in the world is that going to happen? Very simply, you're going to go preach the gospel because he has all authority. People are going to be saved. You are going to disciple them. There's the key we've been missing. And they're going to go right back where they were. Wherever they were working, whatever job field they were in, they're going right. They're taking the salt and the light of the gospel to that place. Why are they doing that? Because you're teaching them to do that. We're not going to teach them, hey, just shut up about it. Okay, look, there's a lot of people that aren't going to like this message. So listen, what you want to do is just be a really good friend to them for years and years and years. And they'll just see the light of Jesus in that. Right? Hey, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, go and make disciples, and that involves teaching. Literally tells his disciples to pray, his kingdom will come on earth just as it is in heaven. Let me ask you something. How is his kingdom in heaven? Everyone in heaven know who the king is? For sure. Everyone in heaven know who's in charge? They know who has all authority? Is rebellion against his authority tolerated and winked at and pretended to be okay? Is it allowed to go unchallenged? Let me bring something else up. If all authority belongs to him, he isn't just the highest authority. He's the only true authority. Catch that? If he is, if he does have all authority, he is the only source of true authority. All other sources of authority are spurious. Anyone who contradicts him is spurious in their claims to authority. Period. I, if you've got a way around that, I'd love to see it. Do you know what I usually hear? Well, Romans 13 says we should just obey the government. So if the government says something that Jesus you know, doesn't agree with, we just have to remember Jesus is the one that put him there, and we just have to do what they tell us. First of all, that is a really poor exegesis of Romans 13. It's also a really poor understanding of how Scripture works. The analogy of faith, right? Can't contradict itself. We, we should just blindly follow whatever the authority says. Okay. Let's run, a little, uh, let's run a little thought experiment on that, shall we? Okay. Let's just... Let's just run a thought experiment to make a point. 
Because the scripture, by the way, has a whole lot more to say about the authority of husbands and wives than it does on governments. Okay? So Ephesians 5.22 clearly says a wife is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. That's, that's a lot of submission. Two verses later, it tells her that she must submit to her husband in all things, just as the church does to Christ. How much submission is that? There's a lot. Okay, so does that mean then that the husband can come in and tell the wife, Hey, listen, I want to make a little extra money, so I'm going to pimp you out to my golfing buddies this week. Hey, you just got to go along with it. You got to submit to me. Is that how that works? Some of you are looking at me like a calf at a new gate right now because that's literally what you've been taught. You've been taught Romans 13 gives unqualified obedience to the government. And the reason you've been taught that is because there's preachers who are indebted to a political party who make really good social standing by saying that. That is not the scriptural version of submission to government. Of course she's not going to allow herself to be pimped out. Why? Because no human authority is absolute. Zero human authority is absolute. None. The only authority that's absolute in heaven or earth is who? Jesus. And my authority as a husband over my wife is only legitimate insofar as the things I ask, command, demand, whatever, are a reflection of Christ's word. As soon as I say, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to make you do this, this unbiblical thing that Jesus has condemned, I am spurious in my authority now. It may seem like I have authority, but I am actually contradicting the king of the earth. The king of the earth has demanded otherwise, and she now has legitimate reason to deny that command. She has legitimate reason not to do it. No human authority is absolute. I got to keep, sorry. Um, all legitimate authority must derive itself from Jesus. He has all authority. If he has all authority, he's the only place you can go for authority. Make sense? Got that? Right? Okay. <clears throat> Why do husbands have legitimate authority over their home? Because Jesus has given it to them. You with me? Why do elders have legitimate authority in the church? Because Jesus has given it to them. You with me? Why do magistrates have legitimate authority in the social sphere? Because Jesus has given it to them. But he has not given unqualified authority to anyone. Those three people, offices... Jesus calls ministers. In fact, in Romans 13, when Jesus is talking about earthly magistrates, he calls them deacons, diakonos, the word for deacons. They are my ministers. Do you know of any minister that there are no qualifications? If I stood up here today and told you, here's what you need to do. You need to go home and uh, carve yourself a little idol of Baal, and you need to bow down to it this evening. Would you be... Um, under command to obey that? Why not? I'm an elder. I have authority in the church. Why? Because I'm contradicting the true king of the church, which is Jesus. 
And when I contradict him, you're under compulsion to obey who? Jesus. The problem is we a lot of times don't think about Jesus being the true authority in the social sphere. We think of him as being, hey, he's the true authority in the home. He's the true authority in the church. But the social sphere, that's, 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 that's not really our concern. No, he's the true authority there too. And by the way, that kind of theology, which we've had for a long time in the American church, is exactly why the culture looks the way it is. doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. Jesus is the legitimate authority, period. Principle number three. No human authority is absolute. None. I don't care what his name is or what his title is or what his rank is. He's not king. Okay, you can show up at my, if somebody shows up at my door tomorrow and says, hey, I'm the president or I'm the governor or I'm the whatever, you must do X. And he contradicts what the true king has said. Guess whose authority wins the day? How is this even like, how, how do we not get this? How is this even a, a dialogue, man? Romans 13, got to do what they say. Uh, no, that's, that's not what that teaches. If the husband tells the wife he's going to pimp her out, is he still a legitimate authority figure in her life? Yes. I'm not arguing he's not. But that request is spurious. It is not legitimate. And guess what? It happens the same way with government figures as well. As soon as the government commands its subjects to act contrary to God's word, it has become spurious. It is giving a spurious, illegitimate command, and Christians are under no compulsion to obey it. And by the way, not just Christians. Is Jesus only the king of Christians? No, he's the king of the world, period. If Jesus has all authority on earth, he also has authority over non-Christians, and that means they are not under uh, compulsion to obey it either. That's why Augustine famously said, an unjust law is no law at all. Why would Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say that, Augustine if you really want to be cool, why would he say an unjust law is no law at all? Well, because he was wrestling through this very theological issue. And realized, wait, if the government gives an order and it contradicts Jesus, they're contradicting the true king of all the earth. They do not outrank him. That guy at your door does not outrank him. If they give a, an order that is against what the king of all the earth orders, they're no better than a group of thugs. Yeah, but they have power. Yeah, just like a gang. Like a cartel. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that they're legitimate. Maybe it means they're a bunch of thugs that need to be deposed. Careful, Wilson. Careful. Look, God calls government authorities his deacons. They're his ministers. Every minister has qualification. Those ministers are no exceptions either. And when his governmental ministers do not act the way he has commanded them to, they're acting spuriously and they're giving up their authority. They're abdicating it. They may not know that, but they are. And I'd love to unpack more 
but I don't have the time. We're going to have to get into that next week or two weeks, sorry. Instead, let me leave you with just four quick examples from Scripture where the government authority gave a spurious order and the God-honoring thing to do was actually to disobey. With me? Example number one, the Jewish midwives would not kill male babies and they even lied to cover it up. Exodus 1, 15 through 21, if you ever want to look that up. Here's what it says. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, if it's a son, you kill him. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. The midwives then said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women, they're vigorous. They give birth before we even get to them. Check this out. They lied to them. Check out what the next verse says. So God dealt well with them. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he rewarded them with families. Oh, they disobeyed Romans 13. No, they didn't. They obeyed the king. Example two, the apostles were beaten for preaching about Jesus in Acts 5. Remember, the authorities said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Where's that courage now? I'll tell you where that courage is. It's in some of you. I've seen it. I say that rhetorically, but I'm quite pleased and quite proud to be associated with you. Because the Lord's given a lot of you a lot of courage. And that's what it's going to take. Example number three, Daniel refuses to stop praying to accommodate the order of the king. The king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions. When Daniel knew that it had been signed, this is what scripture says, he went to his house where he had his windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. Didn't close his windows. Didn't say, I'll just, I'll just keep it a secret for 30 days. That's what we would do. Ah, we're not going to stop praying. We'll just make it a secret. Why? He's the king. Why is it going to be a secret? That's exactly what Daniel was saying. Daniel left his windows open and prayed in the window. No, I'm not intimidated by your order. No, I won't shut up about my king. No, I won't pretend. I'll do what's right because I'm serving the real king. And you know what happened with him. Example four, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow down to the golden image, right? Whoever doesn't fall down and worship will immediately be gassed into a burning, fiery furnace. What did they say? It, now, listen, I'm not saying that we should be scofflaws and we should just, you know, we're trying to be hateful and, and we're trying to be um, disrespectful just for the point. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I'm not going to obey that order. And you shouldn't either. And these guys didn't either. They didn't call him bad names and curse at him. They just said simply, hey, guess what, king? We're not going to do that. Let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. 
Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from that burning, fiery furnace. And he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't, just so that you know, let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods and we won't worship the golden image you've set up. And that is the spirit that resides in you. No, we won't worship your golden image. We'll make you. No, you won't. Let me close by saying this. All authority in heaven and on earth rightfully and truly belongs to Jesus Christ. All of it. Not just in the church. All of it. That's not just some pithy Christian mantra fit for t-shirts and bumper stickers. It's a true statement about a metaphysical reality. Jesus Christ is the true king. And he is the true king over absolutely everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... Let us learn to live under your lordship. Give us a hunger to know your word so that we can identify when we're given spurious orders for those, from those who are rebelling against your authority. And so we can also know when we're given legitimate orders from those who are acting congruent to their office of authority. Let us be good citizens who are known for our willing and cheerful obedience to those laws that are just and right. And give us the courage to speak and act against those things that displease and dishonor you. Let us not just say that you are the king. Let us live as it too. Let your people be bold. Let us be wise and graceful in as much as we can. But Lord, let us be courageous in this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.